Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a book, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. For a fresh new start MJ Network will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone, this is Book Talk with Fran Lewis Brought to you by MJ Network MJ after my sister, Marsha Joyce And we have the author of Thunder Road here This book is absolutely fantastic. When an Army Air Force major vanishes from his top-secret job at Fort Worth Air Base in 1947, down in his luck, former Ranger Jefferson Shaw is hired to find him, which you find out why. The major owns a huge gambling debt to a local mobster. The search takes Shaw from the hideaway poker rooms of Fort Worth, Thunder Road, to the barren ranch lands, of New Mexico to secret facilities under construction in Nevada. And if you want to know more, you got to listen at 347-884-9045. Good morning, and how are you? Welcome to MJ Network. Hi, Fran. It's great to be here. Me? I'm so excited. This, why did you decide on this time period? And I take it you did a lot of research, and the, the scene with the horse made me cry. That's all oh. I'll say about that. I, I'm, I'm I'm glad it, it gets some emotion out of you because I understand that uh, yeah it's it's Sharp's a very fairly stoic character and so uh, yeah he mm. doesn't display a lot of emotion in those types of situations. Um, you know I uh, I was fortunate I'm I have a family that's uh, lived in Fort Worth for generations mm. and so they have always told me the tales of what has gone on here. And it occurred to me that there were a few coincidences that happened to happen over the summer of 1947. Mm -hmm. Um, And three really struck out, uh, stuck out to me. One, everybody knows that something happened near Roswell, New Mexico in the summer of 1947. But what they don't really know, I found, is that the wreckage from that event was Mm -hmm. first brought to the Fort Worth Air Base. I thought, well, that's, that's kind of neat, a little local thing there. But then I found out that uh, Bugsy Siegel was murdered that same summer. And later on in that summer, President Truman signed the, an executive order that created, in one piece of legislation, created the Central Intelligence Agency and also spun the Air Force off from the Army, where it had been since since the Wright brothers. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be neat if these were all connected somehow or another? Mm. And so I'd originally written Thunder Road as, I was trying to write it as a movie. I'm a screenwriter by training. But uh, I could never make that <laughs> a plot that large fit in a 120-minute movie. So I said, well, let's, let's try it as a novel. And so uh, uh, working with the, uh, the really great staff at CanCat Books, uh, we pulled it together into uh, – into a fun story. I thought about them. Do they publish horror by any chance? Camp they Camp do. books. 
I have to remember that when I write the next one. Yeah, they publish uh, several different genres um, Mm. and some really talented people writing in those genres as well. I have to know that because if I ever sit down and finish my next one, which is three quarters away finished, if I but I, I do my reviews of my radio show first. It comes before everything. So I guess one of these days. But I, I know I've dealt with Camcat. I really like them a lot. They are great folks. Yeah. So who was after Jefferson and why? And why was he fired? Poor Jefferson. <laughs> well, I feel bad. he... Uh, he he works for the uh, when we first meet him. I, I didn't want to write just your stereotypical uh, mm. trench coat wearing private eye, mm. and uh, because we're set in Fort Worth, which is where they famously call themselves, where the West begins. I said, well, what mm. if this guy is uh, there's a there's an actual job called a livestock detective. And uh, these uh, these associations of cattle raisers and stockmen and horsemen mm. come together and they hire essentially private game wardens called special rangers in most cases to go out and chase cattle rustlers, make sure that the branded cattle that are going through auctions belong to whoever says that, that that's their brand. And they are kind of a, a small law enforcement group run by these stockmen's associations. So that's what that's the only job that Sharp can find when he comes back from World War II because um, jobs were very scarce for the returning servicemen. And he'd been a policeman before the war, comes back, mm. all the police jobs are taken because everybody who ever wanted to carry a rifle or had to carry a rifle through World War II came back and said, hey, where can I carry a rifle? Oh, I can be a cop. And so law enforcement agencies were all taken up. The only place he can find is working for his father-in-law, who's the executive director of the uh, Stockman's Association. Mm. And they butt heads quite a bit. They, they, they don't quite agree on how law enforcement works between Start, Sharp's history as a policeman and working for the private organization that determines how they want their laws enforced. Um, and that gets him fired. Well, mostly, I've read so many books about law enforcement that I begin to wonder you know, a lot of them are corrupt, a lot of them are not. I get upset when they make policemen into horrible people. I get because they try, but they can only do so much. So, but I, I've read so many there, but some of them are corrupt. What can I tell you? So, yeah. he he decides to go play poker. My aunt would love mm-hmm. this if she was alive. That was her favorite thing to go play poker on Saturday night, <laughs> lose a thousand dollars. They used to play twenty dollars and forty, something like that, ten and twenty, for real. Yeah. And so why did he went to play those deuces? Who owns it? And then he becomes involved in having to search for someone to, for their signature cards. He wants to know what they do. So what exactly is Doyle's point? Well, Doyle Deneker, uh owns the Four Deuces, which is yeah. a hidden game room uh, located at uh, 2222. Uh, on Thunder Road, which is an actual address and was back mm. in the day an actual gambling hall. Uh, I've kind of taken a few liberties with how secretive it was, mm. 
But uh, Doyle is uh, is loosely based on the character or the the gentleman Benny Binion, mm-hmm. who uh, started Binion's Horseshoe in Las Vegas, uh, but started out in the Dallas Fort Worth area, running small poker rooms like this and uh, doing a little gambling business operations in North Texas before he was kind of run out of town and moved to Vegas and started his empire there. Um, He owns the Four Deuces. It's a swanky kind of club. It's uh, where the the high and mighty in town, the the district attorney's been seen there. There are several Mm. uh, socialites who showed up, and uh, they do – they. It's it's the place to see and be seen. And uh, Sharp has been has been playing poker there since his days before the war. He's a very good poker player, mm. and uh, he's known for being a clean player. He doesn't cheat, um, but he and he can catch those who do. Um, so at the table, he is sitting with his typical playing partners and. Uh, who include the local newspaper publisher. There's a uh, a movie actor who comes into Fort Worth to get away from the craziness in Hollywood. He sits at that table and plays. Mm. Uh, Doyle plays there. And they're joined by a uh, another guy who says he's a landman, which in Texas means you're out looking for uh, places that you can lease to uh, oil companies. And that's uh, kind of a boom or bust existence, but the guy may be loaded or he may be lying about being loaded. So uh, they sit down to a game, and uh, the new landman at the table has a few too many to drink and pulls a gun on people and accuses him of, che- of cheating. Um, mm. They then discover that he is actually working for someone who wants to horn in on Deneker's business. And uh, Deneker needs to know what's going on. Well, Sharp's out of work, but he's got detectives. And uh, Doyle offers him a job tracking down the person who sent this uh, this guy to play at his table and find out what's going on. And from there, things kind of slowly begin to snowball into a traditional nor detective novel. It was it's scary because I know that I've seen people play poker, and I know I've seen them where when I grew up playing poker, and I see what happens if they think somebody's cheating. That's even worse. It, it gets crazy. I know even in a even in an all women's poker game, my aunt played with everybody. Didn't matter. <laughs> oh God, you have no idea. I mean, Saturday night she would say, "I'm going to the temple." at 8 o'clock and come home at 4 o'clock in the morning. Basically, she went to play poker, but she went for the hot dogs, to be honest. So <laughs> she, she she loved poker was her life. I don't know why, but she does. So he People was do. investigating cables, and how does it link to the guy that was drunk? I he was, works you know, for Caples. He, he works for Bobby Caples. He's, uh, yeah. he's an underling in that particular organized crime organization. Mm. They don't know it at the time. They kind of put that together later on when they uh, go to one of Capel's clubs and find mm. it there. So we have another character that I like, Ronnie. And what's her story with Jefferson? Ronnie is uh, is Veronica Arquette. And yeah. 
Ronnie is uh, she is the little sister of Sharp's childhood best friend Dave, and uh, Dave and Jefferson both go off to war in 1941, and Dave doesn't doesn't make it back, and so they have this shared loss together. Uh, Fort Worth's a fairly small town in 1947. Mm. I kind of kind of wish it still was. So. Mm. Um, one of the people that Ronnie's involved with, her husband, also works with, is a cop, and works with Sharp at the police department before the war. He also doesn't come back from World War II. And so Ronnie's a, a widow, and she's lost her brother, but she's known Sharp all her life. And uh, they've always, she's always been the pesky little sister who was always around. And now here they are after all years of war and tragedy, and uh, they just run into each other at uh, at lunch one day and uh, kind of have that connection of of old friends who've been through a lot together. And Mm. it doesn't immediately kick off as a romantic entanglement. In fact, Sharp's like, you know, I don't don't know. (laughs) Not not my my best friend's little sister. so she's, uh, and Ronnie's, you know, she's, I think one of the lines in the book is she's got a widow's soul. So mm. she's older beyond her years, and she's she's smart, she's wise. Um, she's also incredibly, because she's a, you know, the femme fatale of, of lore, she's also, uh, she's also a beautiful woman who catches everybody's eyes except Sharp, who can't see her as anything but a pesky little sister. So I loved writing Ronnie. She's a great character. This is an interesting book, and I know there's going to be a sequel. I hope so. So I want to know uh, what happens um, next. <laughs> there, There is one in the works. I see how I know these things. So who are Billings and Martin? And this, and after you answer that one, this, this question is really wild because I don't think people realize the lack of communication things and internet and stuff back then that you couldn't exactly communicate the same way. And I, I guess the police investigation was a lot different back then too. Yeah. Um, you know, there wasn't, there were, there were, nobody had a phone. Um, you know, if you yeah. wanted to talk to somebody, you went to the corner pay phone and you called. Uh-huh. And if they weren't available or they just didn't want to talk to you, they didn't answer the phone. There weren't even answering machines or anything like that. Um, Sharp gets set up with a uh, an answering service, which was the way you could communicate and leave a message. But someone would call the answering service, leave a message, and then you had to call your answering service, and they would mm. relay that message. And uh, it's, we have a lot of fun with that in the book because it, it provides some opportunities for miscommunication, for mm-hmm. development of the plot, some things like that. Um, it uh, it's it was an interesting time to uh, to try and touch base with people. Today we're used to being able to know, you know, what's going on in Australia today. These people wouldn't know what was going on two neighborhoods away or across town until the morning newspaper came out, and then you could read everything about it in the newspaper uh, or catch something on the radio if you happen to catch the radio newscast when it came on or the afternoon newspaper, because in a lot of cities you'd have a morning paper and an evening paper, and that was how you caped up with news and communicated. Um, 
People would leave messages for each other in the classified advertising sessions of the newspaper and tell them to call someone else just to be able to keep in touch. When my mother said they didn't have a phone, but some people, when they finally got phones back then, had what was called a party line. That Mm -hmm. was worse. Because yeah, you, you never knew you'd pick up the phone to answer it. It could be for somebody else. There were no special rings, she said, so you didn't know. Hmm. I, the, the people I knew who had party lines had uh, would be like two longs and a short ring would be them, and they hmm. would pick up. But there'd be five or six other families on that same line yeah. who would then be able to pick up and listen in on your conversation. Um yeah. yeah, I know. You had to be careful what you said, she said. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even want to know. So there are three characters that I really leveled. Doyle, he's interesting. I really liked him. He's devious and whatever, but I liked him. Then there's Gentry and Griffin. So how do they all connect, those three? Right. I like Gentry. Gentry is a he's a movie star. And he mm. comes to Fort Worth just to reconnect. Uh, he's he's the king of the yeah. West and makes all these cowboy movies. Um, uh, he he drives a Cord 812 convertible that's really, really fancy. And I didn't until after writing the book discover that actual cowboy movie star Tom Mix was killed driving that exact same car. I thought that was mm. amazing. Um but Gentry is—he's—he's uh, a—he's uh, an excitement guy. He was in the in the war as everyone else was. He was a an army ranger who went into Normandy before the uh, uh, before the Normandy landings, and is an explosives expert and lives for that action. Got to have that action, mm. um, which ultimately doesn't work out so well for him. Um, but he's uh, he's 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 kind of a little John Wayne, a little Tom mm. Mix, a little you know, not so much a singing cowboy, but the old school the westerns were huge back then, and uh, uh, he's he's kind of our uh, touchstone to the glitz and glamour of the world that uh, comes to visit the Four Deuces Club, and then. Those must have been fun if they were real to go into those kind of clubs. But didn't you have to have a special invitation or just who you were? You just couldn't come up to the door and say, I want to play the poker, could you? Right. First you had to know somebody on the inside and be yeah. invited. And they'd uh, you know, leave. There's a uh, there's an entryway into the back. The back entry into the 22-2020 club is does have a doorman. You do have to be recognized. You do have to get in, and, and Dutch has to vouch for you so that you can come in and and uh, come play. That's scary. So, yeah. Yeah. And well, they had some. To... That's scary. <laughs> I mean, they had some big poker games when I went to the to the mountains. I know that. So I know that yeah. you had to be invited to play. Mm-hmm. And I guess people were. I don't. There were a group of girls that played poker every single night, and they played at the at the Concord or whatever. And I didn't want to know what they were betting, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It uh, it's the kind of thing that you could lose 
significant amount of money in one hand and win a significant amount of money in one hand. And, uh, I, they did, but I really they were the they were the, they were girls of the of the street too, so they got their money in different ways at the hotel. Besides, <laughs> no, it's the, it's the truth. I went with my with my friends, and these two guys came over to me and said, "You know, you're really cute." I go, "Yeah, okay, right, sure." Uh, would you like to have some drinks with us? I said, those two over there said, just walk over. Not a problem. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Everybody in the Monroe <laughs> County knew that they were making playing poker, but they were playing something else. They made a lot of money. They had no problems. So yep. when how does, the bird, how does tinfoil come into this with Jefferson, and what is it? The uh, the tinfoil is, is kind of the MacGuffin for the entire entirety of it's it's mm. it's a mysterious piece of a metal fabric and uh it's based on there there is a photo that was taken at the Fort Worth Air Base when they brought the wreckage mm. in and there's a uh an army I believe is a major in the photo has a piece of this metal mylar looking fabric. Um so it's it's actually real. Uh, and I said, well, what if that did, what if it had alien properties and mystical things that could happen? And so when our mystery person, Major Cartwright, who mm. is, uh, has a super secret job there at the Fort Worth Air Base, and nobody really knows what he does, he disappears. Yeah. But he leaves a clue for Sharp in the form of this piece of tinfoil. Mm. And it takes Sharp a, a good amount in the book to figure out how where this clue is actually located. But once he finds it, he discovers that uh, it's you know it's it's got alien imp symbols on it. It's just it, you fold it up and then it unfolds. It doesn't have any creases in it. You wad it up. It just returns to its normal shape. And he can't really figure out what it is. He doesn't really know what significance it is. But the people, there are a lot of people who are looking for it because it is one of the significant clues to the mystery that has made Major Cartwright disappear off the face of the earth. And uh, there are other forces from the government that are trying to find this particular piece of evidence. And Sharp has it, but he doesn't really know what it is or why anybody else is looking for it. Um, and there are two operatives who are yeah. from what will become the Central Intelligence Agency at the end of the summer, but they're still working as government agents trying to track this down. And uh, so that's, uh, that's Billings and Martin. And uh, they they finally grab Sharp and kind of knock him around a little bit. But he still doesn't reveal that, that he doesn't know yet that he has been entrusted with this. He hasn't found it yet. Um, there is uh, Billings and Martin are trying to find any way they can to find this, and they're not stopping it. They're not asking nicely. They uh, they beat up a few people. They uh, mm-hmm. um, Gentry runs afoul of them, and uh, they they. When Sharp takes Gentry to the hospital, um, they go in, they take Gentry back for x-rays, and Sharp happens to be in the lavatory next to that when, in my mind, the radiation from the x-ray machines significantly alters what happens to 
the tinfoil, and it becomes a mm. communications device that allows him to see alien beings on what's essentially a little television screen. Sharp's seen the television at the state fair, so he kind of understands what's going on. But uh, this is in color. It looks like a movie theater. He doesn't know exactly what he's holding here, and it kind of scares him to death. Um, mm. But he's got to figure out now, okay, who are these people on this little screen, which as soon as he steps away from the uh, from mm. the X-ray machines and those shut off, it goes back to being just a piece of tinfoil. Uh, and Sharp's the only one, he doesn't know this yet, but he's the only one who's ever been able to make this work. Uh, and uh, so he, it's, uh, it's, and he's not the only one who sees it when it does work. So then that's, that's, that's one of those things that you have to find out. You have to read the book to find out exactly what goes on there. But uh, the tinfoil is, is a fun little gizmo that uh, is kind of semi-based on fact. It actually, actually was tin foil and sticks and string that uh, were part of the wreckage. Wait till they figure out what it is that he really seeing. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> that was like, you know, and it's funny because there, there's programs about, I won't say what it is, about that all the time. And people just don't believe it, that that could happen. Yep. But when they read this, they'll realize, oh my God. So he goes to Vegas. And what is he? He thinks that Cartwright holds the key to what's happening, right? So he goes for answers, and he's got a lot of roadblocks. Who's trying to stop him? Well, he uh, included in the uh, there's there's a case uh, that's hidden that Sharp uncovers, mm. and the, the tinfoil is in there along with a a postcard that says "Visit Fabulous Las Vegas," mm. and that's as much of a clue as he has. Um, at the uh, same time all of this is going down, the, uh, there are police raids up and down Thunder Road uh, as concerned citizens are trying to shut down the, uh, the illegal activities there along the, along the highway and, and kind of make the town a little cleaner. <laughs> um, and uh, several people head out for Las Vegas uh, Sharp decides that he's going to see what he can find there, based upon this. Mm. Uh, um, based upon two things: one, the postcard from Major Carter, but also because uh, mysterious people keep trying to kill him. He's he's got people who are after him, notably Martin and Billings, but uh, it seems like other people are are uh, are disappearing. Um, one of the characters, uh, a pair of them, there's a couple, uh, the Griffin family, uh, and Velma Griffin thinks that her husband is possibly cheating on him, on her, and uh, mm. she wants she wants to get Mr. Sharp to follow her husband. And Sharp uh, Sharp does this partially as a way to show the reader that he does have some detective skills, that he does, mm. he is an actual, becoming a real life private eye. He's got business cards printed now that say he's a private eye. He's, uh, he's starting to make this mental shift that this may be his, his new career. And um, when he does catch Mr. Griffin with a mysterious 
uh, lady at a motel and photographs that. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in the book is when he's delivering the uh, delivering the photographs to Mrs. Mm-hmm. Gordon and telling her that you know she, you really didn't want to find this out. And her husband arrives right in the middle of that conversation, and the uh, uh, the confrontation there is uh, is a great deal of fun. Sharp <laughs> um, escapes, but uh, there's uh, a wing back chair takes a really really bad has a bad day. <laughs> he he gets into a lot, but he's good. He's he's somebody you want on your side definitely to help you. Because he's not going to stop until he finds the answers. He's not no, like he's other not. people. If he comes, people come to a roadblock and they go the heck with it. Not him, which is good. No, he's so he's terribly stubborn. <laughs> I know. I have the same personality. If I want to know something, I'm not going to stop until I find the answer, no matter what it takes, and no matter who I have to yeah. annoy. You got to be like yeah. that. Yeah. It's, so, it's a lot different than a world where you just. Pick up and Google something, and if you don't find it in the first 10 minutes of searching, you just say, okay, well, I don't know. I guess we'll figure it out sometime later. No. This was a Mm -hmm. a world where you just kept chugging. The only thing that bothers me with the Internet is that there's too much information. So I was trying to figure out yesterday how to get my personal information off of Google because they have too much. And then there's Truth Finder, Ben Verified, and all of that. People don't realize, Spokane... You just have to put your name in there, and they could tell you all about you, even if you didn't know you were there. Gary, yep. could you imagine if they have that back then, what they could find out? Oh, oh yeah. The world would be completely different. So tell us about the bomber and what happened with Doyle. Um, Doyle's situation is very interesting. In that one of the other characters mm. in the book is, uh, is Leo Fuller who is the publisher yeah. of the local newspaper. And uh, Leo is is mixed up in a real estate deal that uh, he wants to make sure that Fort Worth is a nice, clean, wonderful community that people want to buy homes and build houses and subscribe to his newspaper. And uh, he's uh, to do that, he can't have something like Thunder Road uh, being seen as this, this corrupt area of town. Mm. And so he wants to start a campaign to clean up the city. The problem is Leo is also just a big part of that because he plays poker at Thunder on Thunder Road all the time, just to say the Sharp or Doyle or any of these other people. But he's willing to look beyond that for his own selfish mm. interests. And uh, when he goes to Doyle, and says that he's going to start an effort to clean up the the town and close down Thunder Road. You know, Doyle's kind of it kind of hits Doyle from the left field because he's not he's not looking he wasn't expecting that from there. He was expecting it from the Texas mm. Rangers or the local police or mm. something like that. He wasn't expecting it from his buddy, the newspaper publisher, who sits. Well, people turn on people just for the fake sake of greed and what they want. They think yep. they can get, so they don't care, right? I That's got exactly that. right. And so this so is Doyle's really thing. cool. Lyndon Johnson, you got to like him, I guess. Why did you introduce <laughs> – you know, you like – forget it. He was like whatever he was, but, yeah. 
So why did you introduce Lyndon B. Johnson and to, into this story? Because he sort of fits there. Is he, and is he going to come back in the next one, too? <laughs> uh, he may. He may. Um, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I was born and raised in, in Texas, and, and LBJ was you know this mythical figure in Texas politics, mm. as much for the fact that he didn't always do things in the most above-board fashion. Um, there are stories that uh, you know, he won in one of his elections at his first state office after a, mm. a bunch of uh, people in the cemetery voted for him. Um, there are all sorts of things like that. And so I wanted to have some connection to the federal government in this. Mm. And it coincided with Johnson's run, for, for initial runs for national office. Um, and it occurred to me that he would be just exactly the guy who did not yet know how much power he would have, but saw that mm. he could pull the right levers and make those things happen. Um, there was also a great tradition that uh, there was a very powerful newspaper publisher who Leo's kind of based on in Fort Worth, who was a friend of, of FDR. Mm. And there are numerous photos and stories about uh, FDR coming to Fort Worth and spending the night at the Fort Worth Club and going out uh, on the publisher's boat on one of the area lakes and and just having that relationship. And I thought, well, that'd be kind of neat if it extended on into LBJ and him having a relationship with this newspaper publisher who we already know is not exactly above board. Um, mm. And uh, can then work within the what will become through the 40s and 50s and 60s this very interesting situation that we've uh, we've laid the groundwork for on Thunder Road. Well, the fun part is that most people don't know a lot about the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, and kids don't know enough about anything lately. Um, yes. Serious, they, they don't know the history. I mean, I taught for a long time and my my students knew a lot <laughs> and it wasn't like I was going to get up in front of the room and tell you you're going to have to figure it out and do some research even if it means you know using your, I, at times they had cell phones believe it or not parents had cell phones in the room and I would go check out your phone google and tell me what you find and they were like you're serious they go yeah I'm serious because I'm not going to do it for you you're going to have to learn for yourself that was, that was the most fun of teaching upper grades I loved it so we had Lyndon B. Johnson, and now, before I forget, on Thursday, someone we all know and love, James McCone, Bastard Verdict. We're going to talk about the um, referendum uh, to uh, in Scotland to get to get uh, to get away from um, Great Britain. They want to secede from Great Britain. So this is a true story, and there's going to be a real referendum in September again. So this is based on true fact. It was interesting. On the 5th, at 11, I don't do things at 11, but Robert McCaw and Retribution is at 11. And on the 8th, this really is great. He is the number one interior designer in the world. It's not a book. We're going to talk about interior design with Howard Wiggins at 5 o'clock, seriously, on the 8th. On the 13th, after 12 years, he's back with a brand-new book, and I get the interview first, The Trial, Richard North Patterson. I mean, I was like, 
oh my god that's a, that's fantastic and on the 20th Patrick Bridger reckoning and that's just some of June I'm booked till the last day for real so that's great <laughs> yeah I know it keeps me it keeps me out of the stores my husband said I don't have to buy anything so what was Ronnie's problem and why did she fall apart Ronnie uh, Ronnie and uh, uh Sharp escape Fort Worth, uh, yeah. thinking that people are trying to get them. And Sharp doesn't want anything to happen to her. And mm. so they head for Las Vegas, which today means you call Southwest, and sometime this afternoon you'll get on a plane, and before it gets dark, you'll be dropping money at Caesars. But in 1947, that meant mm. a Twenty or twenty-five hour drive across the desert in the middle of the summer mm. in a car with no air conditioning, and uh, so she's rushed out of Fort Worth. She doesn't really get asked if she wants to go, but yeah. uh, here's her. Uh, here's this guy she's known forever. Her brother's long lost best friend, and he piles her in the car and says, "Well, we're getting out of here before something happens to you, uh, or him either." And uh, they immediately head west to Roswell to to talk to the folks at the ranch, is what Sharp's thinking. Well, Ronnie's thinking, here I am with this guy who I know, but I don't know. And we're running off to nowhere. And he's kind of hinting that there might be something maybe romantic going, maybe not. She can't really Mm. tell. She knows that she's not in a position to really have anything like that happen. And uh, they get to a a hotel in a small town in New Mexico, and he signs them in as Mr. and Mrs. Sharp so that nobody will be making any, Mm. you know, casting any aspersions. (laughs) And uh, and she freaks out, uh, which, you know, in 1947, she very well would have. Uh, He's he's taking some liberties that uh, she's not that kind of girl. And... uh, so it uh, it provides a good amount of stress, and she kind of they have a good fight, <laughs> and uh, Sharp winds up in another room sleeping by himself. But he doesn't get much sleep. He spends most of the time making sure that his pistol's clean. Well, he pretty much told them that she was married to him because he didn't. He wanted to get a room, I guess, and he wanted yep. them to think that they were together. I don't think he did it for illicit purposes, but. She freaked out. I was cracking up because I probably would have done the same thing. Definitely. Yep, yep. He's, he's not really thinking very far beyond just getting them into a hotel room and off the streets. And she's like two steps ahead of him all the way down. Wait a minute here, fella. And, uh, yeah, it gets, it, uh, it gets to be a fun scene. You know, and she's, you know, girl power people. So what yeah. happens when... She, uh, Jefferson and Cartwright come in the same room. What? What? How does that? What? It tell us about Cartwright and how he reacts to Jefferson. Cartwright and uh, uh, and Sharp have an interesting situation. Um, yeah. Cart, Cartwright was a an Army Air Corps pilot, uh, and he and Sharp met during the war under some very strange circumstances. Um, Sharp's infantry troop was under, being shelled by some German artillery, 
and uh, and they're going to get annihilated. There's just not two two ways about it. When suddenly Cartwright's plane comes in, strafes the uh, strafes the German lines, and uh, more or less saves uh, what's left of Sharp's platoon. But his plane is hit by an aircraft fire, and he goes down in the trees of an adjacent forest that Sharp's troops uh, escape into. Now, the troops are, the entire platoon is emaciated. There's there's nothing really left. Sharp's on his own, uh, and he finds Major Cartwright hanging from his parachute in a tree. So he they, they get Cartwright down, and Sharp does what little first aid he can, and he's going to get Cartwright back to the lines. And they they, they know who each other. They they introduce each other. Uh, Cartwright's terribly wounded, so he tells Sharp to go on and gets left for the Germans mm. to find and hopefully take to a POW camp and give him some medical attention. Sharp makes it back to the lines, but can't get back to him before the Germans overrun the position. So they've met during the war, but that's it. I mean, probably for less than six or eight hours together. Uh, Cartwright appears years later at the Four Deuces to play poker. Uh, He's working now at the Fort Worth Army Air Base with his top secret job. And Mm. uh, so they immediately recognize each other and, and... you know, they greet like they're long-lost friends because they each saved the other's life. Uh, Cartwright by strafing the artillery encampment and Sharp by getting him medical attention and getting, you know, leaving him to be found for people who could help him. Um, and so they're, they're long-lost acquaintances, uh, but they're blood brothers, technically. They, they owe each other their, their life debt. And so... When Cartwright suddenly disappears from mm. his job, uh, he owes a significant amount of money to Doyle Deneker, um, what some seven thousand dollars, I believe, and it's that's a lot of money in 1947 you know, when that would that would almost buy you a house. Um, mm. And Deneker didn't really want to to give him that much credit, but he's a soft touch for military guys because he works that close to the air base. And now the guy is gone. So he hires Sharp to uh, track him down. Go find this guy. Give me my money back. But Sharp doesn't have any clue as to where he's gone. Uh, I have no idea that he would have gone to, uh, um, to Las Vegas. That all gets tracked down through a series of uh, investigative work by Sharp, a little bit of just dumb luck, uh, and some insightful thinking. Uh, so we get to see Sharp be tenacious. We get to see him be a little a little smart. We get to see him uh, uh, put two and two together and, and add three and carry four and do all sorts of mental math to discover exactly where the clues are that Cartwright has left for him. So what happens um, to th- what happens to Thunder Road? And I'm just reading in your in your book thing at the end. It says during World War II, the American government built a secret base in New Mexico to house the Manhattan Project and build the atomic bomb. So 
Do you think that's possible that Area 51 in Nevada is still there? Oh, yes. I, yeah, I think it, for the purposes of the book, I think it has to be. Yeah. Uh, but I believe, you know, <laughs> this, this gets into the uh, the dreaded, or do you believe in aliens kind of yeah. kind of thing. Um, and I don't, I don't know that, that I believe that there are little green men incarcerated <laughs> in and in Nevada, who were you know have been slowly teaching the uh, the American government how to do things for the last fifty years, but or seventy five years, but it's a lot of fun to write about. Well, I saw a program called on the aliens on one of the I think it was Channel fifteen or something that these guys are on a boat. Actually, they still think they saw little green men. They were positive mm-hmm. they did. Yeah, for yep. real, they actually positively think that there are aliens out there. And they actually show these little green things, and I go, okay. And supposedly it's real. I don't believe everything I see, but it was interesting. So what happens it's, to Thunder Road? Does it fall apart? Is there still a Thunder Road? Because they, they were destroying everything. They they were destroying everything. In reality, uh, they did. Um, Thunder Road was a really vibrant strip. Uh, mm-hmm. Along Highway 199 that leads from Fort Worth to Jacksboro, it's called the Jacksboro Highway. And mm-hmm. back then, there were nightclubs, there were there were dance halls. Uh, there's an area along Fort Worth or Linkworth, just north of Fort Worth, uh, called Casino Beach because there was a giant casino there. And uh, these places were. The casinos that you think of, uh, even today, they had dance halls. They'd have bands like the Dorsey Brothers or uh, you know, Sinatra. Those kind of guys would come and, and play mm. on Thunder Road. And so, in reality, uh, there was a firebrand preacher who mm. made it his his goal in life was to shut down all of the uh, all of the places on Thunder Road. And uh, his name was J. Frank Norris. And Norris went on a campaign and eventually did get all of these things shut down. Um, when you go to 2222 Highway 199, the home of where the Four Deuces is, it's now a jack-in-the-box. Mm. Um, and and, and that's kind of that's sad, but it's progressive. Yeah. You know, now there are... There's Walmarts and fast food restaurants all up and down the road now instead of uh, the Skyliner Hotel or the uh, uh, the Caravan Hotel, a couple of places that are in the books that uh, um, were well-known places for gaming and gambling and high times. Now, I grew up in the South Bronx, and it's still there. Yeah. Where it was. Yeah, I, think I looked up. I, think I looked up the other day to see where I used to live. I go, oh my god, I'm glad I don't live there anymore. It's like, oh my god, and it was dangerous back then. I just didn't realize it. You really don't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I had family who lived along that part of Fort Worth for generations, yeah. and uh, they worked at the bomber factory and just uh, went to work every day. They didn't really think about the thing, and you know, there'd be a There'd be a headline in the paper that somebody blew up a car or someone was found murdered because of of Mm. uh, an argument on Thunder Road. But uh, now that's all nice and cleaned up. I wonder what would happen 
if so, if this if this book wound up in the present, and there was no communication, no DNA, no internet, no phones, nothing. I wonder what would happen if people actually had a day where they couldn't communicate by phone or anything. Oh, wow. I wonder how they would react. I often thought about that because if you ever had a blackout, that's what happens. We had yep. a blackout in the Bronx, and you know, you couldn't use your phone, nothing. It was scary. We 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 had rather famously had a uh, had a freeze here in Texas where all the electricity went out. Yeah, and, I uh, see. It was it was it was difficult. Um, you know, the yeah, at some point just cooking dinner in your fireplace was more of a concern than the fact that uh, all of the phone lines were out and there wasn't anything like that going on. But uh, yeah, it's it would be. It would be difficult, I think, to to imagine how how much life would change if we didn't have our our ability to communicate instantaneously the way we do now. It was scary, especially on nine eleven when I was in school, and I thought I looked mm. at the TV and I go like, wait a minute, that just blew up something, and then you go to use your cell phone and you can't. You couldn't yeah. use anything. I was like, and I was lucky because I had a different carrier back then, and I was lucky that my cell phone was able to get anybody at all. But when you came home, I had to walk up 17 flights of stairs because the elevator was dead. Yikes. Oh, there was like never, oh, my God, it's so scary. So which part of the book do you feel was the least plausible, and where do you see Jefferson and Ronnie next? The least plausible. Um, probably the the ending is is the least plausible. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's either it's either completely not possible, or we should all be really scared. <laughs> yeah, the government has hidden something of this size. Um, yeah, I I grew up in a part of the world that uh, is very much into the uh, the nuclear uh, mm. in Amarillo, Texas. And just outside of Amarillo is the final assembly point for nuclear weapons. And so we learned just as part of daily life about the Manhattan Project and all mm. of the things that went into that. And to think that the government could hide an entire city while they moved all of these incredibly brilliant people into this little space in New Mexico, and nobody knew it for years, yeah. is you, know, you start to think, well, maybe some of this could possibly happen. Um, but I'm not sure. <laughs> it's scary because we don't know what's really happening. That's the scary part. Right. I know. I listen to the news, and I watch my favorite channel is the Weather Channel. And every time they have a thunderstorm in Texas, I feel terrible, or Oklahoma, or Missouri, or or wherever. And you guys seem to get a lot of them. And the hailstorms, and go like, this is my favorite channel because it's like the only one that doesn't have murder on it, except for the people that get hurt in the, in the you know, the thunderstorms or whatever, or the tornadoes. When they show the devastation, I get upset. I go, oh my God, it's horrible. But, yeah. Okay. yeah, I know. So where do you see Jefferson and Ronnie next? And when is the next book coming? Um, there, there is a next book coming. I'm, I'm working through the, the outline and the major story points of it right now. Um, we we meet them uh, right after the conclusion of, of Thunder Road. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
they're they're trying to make a life for themselves in Las Vegas and uh, working in and around the mob connections that are are founding Las Vegas at the time and and just some some interesting things that will uh, will pop up and uh, tie into Sharp's service in World War II and uh, just where they go from there. Kind of, I don't want to get too much away, um, but I, I think people who enjoy Thunder Road will enjoy it immensely. Well, I didn't know what to expect, and on top of which I was having a fit because the book didn't come to right before the show. So I wound up buying it on eBay, on Amazon, which I never do. I said, you know what, I'm not going to be able to read this in time. I better get it. And the post office has really been horrible. And I, I have to uh, interview Barrett Bitcher. Thank God the book came yesterday. I was like, Kelly, oh, uh, God. Yeah, a lot of them are just not coming. And a lot of the authors are saying, how come you didn't review my book? I said, well, talk to the post office. Don't talk to me. And I said, send, if you send it for UPS, I get it. If you send it to Amazon, hmm. I get it. But this was like, this, oh, I just couldn't believe it. I just said, oh, my God, am I going to get this? And I got it like last week ago. And then I got the one you sent, finally. It's been very difficult just to get books yeah. this last year, 18 months. The, yeah, it's the, horrible. The infamous supply chain issues, paper costs, and, and just producing books has been has been terrible for the publishing industry. I know, and they don't want to send, and I, can't, I won't read on my computer. It bothers my eyes, and I won't read digital, only read print. And some of the authors, you know, said whatever, and I said, then I just can't do your review, and I won't. Because I'm not going to hurt my eyes. I read like five books a day, and that's not going to happen if I have yeah. to read that that much. Yeah, it's hard. So, And then, and then there's one particular um, that does horror, very fantastic uh, book tour, um, Isabella Blackthorn, Blackberry Tours, and I, they mm-hmm. said to me, uh, before you ask for the print, it's in the mail. Like, what? <laughs> well, I was I laughing. A... I go, they don't send prints to anybody. I said, before you even ask, it's, it's going to be there before you even say anything. So where can everybody get all of your books? So this is the first one that you've written? This is the, this is the first book that I've, uh, I've had published. Uh, I have another mm-hmm. book coming That's amazing. out in December. Um, it, uh, it's called The Oxygen Farmer. It's a science fiction novel. It's not related oh, nice. to Thunder Road at all. Uh, it's about a, a grumpy old guy who uh, who lives on the moon and uh, discovers a, a secret that nobody really wants found. And so it'll be coming out. Uh, the Oxygen Farmer comes out December 5th and uh, also from CanCat. And I'm really looking forward to getting that, uh, that going. And if you did read uh, electronically, uh, I understand that uh, Thunder Road is going to be available on all the major ebook platforms. Oh, good! Uh, starting in, uh, for ninety nine cents on June, the month of June, uh, starting June first. So Apple Books, Amazon, Kindle, uh, wherever you like to read an ebook, uh, spend ninety nine cents and pick up a, a really good yarn. I think you should too. But if you know what, if you Google yourself, you're going to find out that you're in China, Japan, England, and everywhere, and in Kobo books, oh, yeah. everywhere. <laughs> I was like, I didn't even realize it. Yeah. I didn't even know that. My last book is called Accusations. 
it's horror. It's based on people that were wrongly accused. And mm-hmm. they told me this story. Five of the stories of the seven are true, for real. And, wow. the, and two of them are people that, whose voices were silenced, and those are true, too. So I got some interesting reviews, and I got some people that just don't understand English. What can I say? But I <laughs> <laughs> just like whatever. You can't. You can't have everything. So are you going to do another tour with Partners in Crime? Because they always ask me that question. I would love to. They have been a wonderful partner and have, uh, have turned on yeah, an entire new audience to. Uh, to the Adventures of Jefferson Sharp and Thunder Road, and uh, I'm very appreciative of, uh, of the, the kind words that the reviewers have given over this last month. Well, you're lucky because my rev- I, my tour just ended, and I had 14 people, and I only got two good reviews, and the rest I won't even discuss. Mm. It's like, whatever. Yeah, and a couple of people just didn't bother to, to even review it. So I said, you know what it happens? I have to just take the two five-star reviews and say, those are the people that got what I was trying to say. <laughs> what can you do? I don't write negative yep. reviews ever. I don't believe in that. And if a book is in three and a half or four stars, I'll just write a summary. I won't review it. I don't believe in panning people's work. They work too hard. It's not right. So I appreciate that. Thank you so very much. And I will put your stars on Amazon in a few minutes. But it's on just reviews, and I'm sure Gina's going to give it, send it to you, and I hope it meets your approval that you like it. Everybody, it's a beautiful day outside. Everybody have a great day, Colin. Thank you so much for brightening my day, and bye. Thanks, Brian.